When I was in primary school, our dad temporarily moved out of home and shacked up with another woman. He seemed to have no shame about abandoning his wife and ten children, and in fact I remember the whole affair as an enjoyable break in the family routine. I certainly had no ill feelings towards this woman, I never saw her as a homewrecker, as our home had run aground long before she sailed into my father's life. But I did take exception to her daughter, who in an awkward coincidence was in the same class at school as my sister Barbara. This brazen piece of work sidled up to Barb one day, asking whether she liked her new bracelet. When my sister grunted some form of acknowledgement, this little tramp then boasted, Your dad bought it for me. Naturally, Barb was gobsmacked, as was this girl quite literally a moment later when Barb bashed the shit out of her. But Barb's obvious distress showed me that dad's actions did have consequences, because poor behaviour is a zero-sum game. No matter how shameless the perpetrator, someone is always left to carry the burden. Which brings me to Chris and the story of his brother who unashamedly lived a life without any thought to the consequences for himself or those around him. Welcome to my fucked up family. Welcome to my fucked up family. Thank you. Although I don't know you. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a member of the family already. Well, you're about to. We're about to get to know each other very, very, very well. And, uh, but, uh, but I would like to start off with you've actually got your own podcast called Backstage Pass. Yes, I have. That's right. And it's quite a fascinating series. So, so tell us a little bit about that first up. Well, that's kind of you. Um, it's a series of six episodes, about half an hour each episode, and it looks back at a time in the 70s, the early 70s, when, uh, as I describe it, rock and roll production was sort of coming of age, and it was moving out from the kind of fluorescent overhead white light in rather dingy, <laughs> dirty town halls and, and grubby, grubby venues, um, and moving into much more kind of mainstream entertainment and people wanted to have more than just go along and and hear the band or the artist and have a visual experience as well and that's what we did and developed various aspects of the staging and worked on some of the biggest outdoor shows in the history of popular music and toured with some of the biggest names worldwide come on drop some names for us chris um well, one or two that you might have heard of, or the Rolling Stones were a client, um, ABBA, The Who, uh, we worked with Pink Floyd. Um, most of the big name bands and artists of that period, for, so we go from the Rolling Stones to Frank Sinatra, how about that? Oh, that, that is sensational, that is sensational. So it's very much worth a listen, I've got to, I will recommend it to, to our listeners. Thank you. But, uh, but for today, really, the stories we're interested in are a little bit closer to home for you. And uh, mm -hmm. I thought, as we normally do, it would probably be good for you to start off with a little bit of a description of your family, who they were when you were growing up. Right. Family of six. Right, okay. So there was my mum and dad, then my sister, who was older than I was, myself, and then two younger brothers. Right, okay, okay. My, da my dad was um, uh, a pharmacist or a chemist and ran three retail shops in London. And uh, my sister went to, a, you know, a, a good school. 
I tried to get into a good school in London, which was a, a, a public school, sort of top of the range. And I went along for the interview and uh, I was asked, so if it was raining on a Saturday afternoon, how would you spend your time? And you were supposed to say, you know, write a poem in Latin or something like that. Yeah. And I said, I'd watch the wrestling on the television with my mum, <laughs> because, because that's what we did. My mum would cut some cake and we'd sit down with a cup of tea, very English, and watch the wrestling. So, so your mum was, your your was a bit of a wrestling fan, was she? Uh, she was, yes. That was that was her one kind of um, nod to being unconventional, I suppose. Apart from that, she was pretty buttoned up about stuff. <laughs> okay, so your schooling your, your schooling didn't go to plan then. Not not to that public school, but I went to another one, which was the kind of um, the the second string. The the school I failed to get into was Dulwich College, although my two brothers subsequently went there. And the school I got into was a place called Aline's, which had a big history of drama. There had been an English teacher there who had enthused the tearaways, principally in the school, um, to take an interest in staging plays. And uh, then subsequently formed a group called the National Youth Theatre, which I joined. And they did plays in the school holidays. And it was from there that my interest in theatre sort of grew. And... Eventually, I came to go to drama school and then work in theatre and then television and then in the rock and roll production business. So life worked out pretty well, really. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yes, it did. Your, your siblings, so you, there was four of you then. And, yes. uh, and And tell us a little bit more about the relationship that you had with the three siblings. Okay. Well, my sister was older than me mm -hmm. by about four years. So she was born towards the end of the Second World War. My mother, as far as I can make out, had always wanted another daughter. And they actually, my parents had three more sons when they eventually gave all that up and decided they weren't going to get another daughter. <laughs> but she was kind of a bit of a clone of my mother, but slightly more um, liberal and worldly wise. My mum had come from um, a country background, and I'm not to this day sure how my father met her um so it was pretty remote and rural yeah but she came from there to london with my father when they got married and and sort of fell in behind him working in the shop and supporting him and and having the children and so then what about your what about your younger brothers then what were they like well my my two younger brothers um one was uh two years younger than me mm -hmm. and he went to that school, Dulwich College, mm -hmm. and he was sort of pretty academic and pretty serious. And he was always destined to be was what he did, which was an accountant. Right. And then the brother, who was um, four years younger than I, was a bit more of a maverick and turned into the kind of superhero maverick, or maybe hero is the wrong word, but super maverick. Um, and he was much more kind of a free spirit. He was less certain of the career path that he was going to follow. So, were, were there were there high expectations from your parents on what you were to do with your lives? Oh, I think there were. Yes, um, I mean, uh, we talked briefly about the rock and roll business and and theatre and and television. And my father never really viewed all that as being a proper job. Yeah, never really rated it. I guess it was so far out of his world. No. Well, exactly. 
Yes, exactly. Although, to give them both credit, they would come to see a production that I was involved in in the theatre, or they would turn the television set on when there was a, a, a drama on that I'd been involved in. But it was, yeah, it was pretty foreign to them. Yeah, yeah. But see, you would have, they would have, they would have been watching you on the BBC and you would have had a credit and everything I, like I, that, I wouldn't you? I probably did have credit somewhere along the line, but, um, but you know, they would, uh, undoubtedly in the circles they moved in, the professional sort of circles, they would have dined out a bit on, you know, the BBC was something that people knew about, yeah. BBC television. So they would have dined out a bit on that. But, yeah, yeah. You know, the, 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 the brush with the rock and roll business was uh, here. There was a program called Top of the Pops yes, on television. Yes. When my father returned from work, he would come in and the first thing he'd do was not say hello, but go over to the television set and turn it down. If not, turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> So that's that's how that's how he, that's how he rated your world. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. All right. Well, that, look, that's that gives us a really good little picture of your upbringing, and it does sound a very proper middle class. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So then, your youngest brother. You, you mentioned yeah. that he uh, was a bit of a maverick, and uh, yeah. had a, had a bit of trouble defining a path. Yes. What did he do when he when he left school? Oh, he wanted to be a solicitor, so he went to be uh, to become an articled clerk. That was the path he headed off on. Right. But uh, it, it, there was a detour from that because my dad decided that he was about to take retirement from the business. Mm. So he actually asked all of us if any of us would be interested in taking the business on. Right. And I wasn't, my sister wasn't, my older brother wasn't, but the younger one said, yeah, he'd have a crack at it. So when he talked about taking the business on, did that mean becoming a yeah. pharmacist or just managing the pharmacies? No, just like the general manager, yeah, I suppose, right. or the, you know, the, the director. Yes. So uh, he said he'd have a go at that. So he was installed, you know, in my father's office to to begin to learn the ropes of running the business. Right. Big, big mistake it turned out to be. And why is that? What happened? Well, unbeknown to me at the time, um, he had a history, my brother, of doing things that were not quite right uh, and towards, you know, as, as life moved on, became actually criminal. And uh, I discovered, for example, that he had been the treasurer of the local scout group. And as that job entailed looking after the cash side of things, mm -hmm. you know, collecting the subscriptions weekly and all that, he found that he was able to actually take money out of the tin and nobody knew it had gone. So there was no sort of incentive to put it back again. Right. I mean, it was small, yes. small change, yes. really. And then that gave him, I think, uh, the, the light came on in his head and, and he saw, actually, I can move up a few gears here. And he started dipping his hand quite literally in the till in my father's business. Right. And, um, you know, that would have been devastating for my dad. How long had he been working in the pharmacy with your dad before he started taking some liberties with the funds? Uh, difficult to tell. I mean, m maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, but certainly no longer than a few months, I think. Right, my so he, he got was, into it. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, again, as I think he had learned through the scout experience I, I told you about, um, I think he thought, well, I can get away with this. Nobody's kind of spotted it. But 
I think my dad had fairly early on and just went on to see he, he, he decided to see how things might develop and 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 his I mean it was theft yeah and the thefts got more serious and so the family solicitor was kind of called in to give my brother a talking to right now actually you know I looking back um, that was never going to work he would have just shrugged his shoulders and go, okay, okay, hands up, I did it, you know, and I'll stop doing it. But he didn't, and... And, and yeah. did your dad confront him again, or, like, how did it escalate? Yeah, I was living away from home, so I wasn't able to follow it kind of on a daily basis. Yeah. I would pick up in phone calls to my mother. Um, I think that, you know, shortly after the solicitor, maybe again a few weeks possibly months but i doubt it was that long it was clear that this was continuing and i think it was like you know a termination of contract or post or arrangement however so he shut it down pretty quickly but i would guess the overall time he'd been involved in the business was probably about a year is that all yeah well i've got to give it to your brother he doesn't muck around i mean you know no he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> And so yeah, go for it, go for it big. Yeah, and so like so that's that's obviously very sad for your for your brother and your father's relationship. How did your mum yeah. deal with it? Um sort of as she did later on, try and pretend it wasn't happening, right. I think. Yeah. As I explained, she'd come from the country into this sophisticated ish world in London where there was, you know, a, a man heading the family in his own business, doing pretty well, well I think. Yeah. Um, with you know the the archetypal family around him, um, all going to good schools, and friends were the local solicitor and family doctor, and and going to Rotary Club and all that stuff. So it was a it was um you know that was his bag. My mum just kind of was more of a spectator, I suppose, without playing. A big active role in it. Yeah, and I guess that that, that I mean that was uh, like a part of the times, really, as well, wasn't it? I think so. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, and so when that relationship fractured, yeah, uh, how did you and your other siblings handle your brother at that point? Did you ever take him aside and say, "What what are you doing?" Um, shamefully, no, because events kind of rolled on at some speed because my dad decided that now was the time to retire right. and put the business up for sale and at the same time sold the family house and moved into uh, an apartment. So I, things were moving at some speed. And no, I don't think any of us confronted him, although uh, all of us were aware individually and collectively of, you know, what he was like. Right. And so I guess it was just that it was sort of like lost in that whole transition of your parents' life. It just became yes. part of that and they were now building something else. So I guess there was a lot of other distractions going on at that time. In, indeed, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sure that's right. Yeah. Yes. yes. Wow. Okay. And so... He's been jettisoned from the business. The business has been sold. So what did he do then? Did he... Well, he, 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 um, he bounced back. He right. kind of <laughs> carried on regardless, almost. He variously worked for a company installing kitchens and 
a, a range of kind of other stuff. Was he a charming kind of a guy? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I mean, he he would um, he was also astonishingly. Um, he was like a magician, really. Did he did he get married? Was he was he was he married at all? Or? He did. Yeah. yeah. In, in between all these episodes, he he was married at a, a really nice, similar to my mother, um, country girl, um, and they had two children, and um, all that you know the the apparently normal family background was being developed and and carrying on behind his skullduggery <laughs> in other areas of his life. Oh, okay, so um, so so, how did your relationship evolve, and what happened in the years to come? Well, it became it became sort of distant because of the physical distance between yeah. us. He remained in London, and I moved to the southwest. Mm-hmm. But of the the uh, my three siblings, um, uh, he was the one I guess I remained closest to in a in a funny because he was of a similar kind of ilk spirit to me you know he wasn't the the accountant yes 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 that my father would have wished for us all you know he was sort of rather more independent minded yeah and so then what 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 became of him what did he end up doing well he ended up sort of somewhere along the line he must have met people who sort of um sold him on the idea of not just sticking your hand in a till in a retail outlet but there were bigger fish to fry potentially and i think the kitchen fitting company um were one avenue to kind of exploring that because it turned out he was taking deposits and charging and the company were not seeing the entire proceeds of those deals right again it was a sort of instance of if he was found out then for whatever reason, the people who found him out decided not to escalate it to criminal proceedings. Is or that right? Or, yeah, weird. Just very, very, at that stage, you think, well, why not? But that's how it was. And so people but so he, people just kept on letting him off the hook and partly because of yeah. his charm, I guess, maybe because of I his think, circumstances. I think charm was it, that, you know, he could talk himself out of pretty much any situation and talk himself into pretty much any situation. <laughs> I mean, when, at some stage, and I can't remember chronologically how this fitted, but um, he came down to where I'm living, the area where I'm living now. He went to a local pub, and in there happened to be somebody who was at school with him. So we're talking, you know, 15 years previously or something yeah. like that by yeah. this stage. And this guy, he persuaded this guy to help him out in a property deal by loaning him (laughs) £30,000. So some way he was able to persuade this guy, you know, I'm going to do this and don't worry, you'll get your money back. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Guess what? He never got the money back. So he had to sell, this man had to sell his mother's house. Oh, no. um, so to make ends meet. Oh, so it wasn't like he just had. It wasn't like he had thirty thousand quid just sitting around doing no, nothing. No, 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 not at all. This was about, you know, the time when it began. He'd hurt my father badly over the business. Yeah. Um, but gradually, the, the the scale of what he was doing 
all got much, much bigger. And he was eventually arrested, taken to court and sent to prison. Um, fraud. And he was incredibly sort of blasé about it. You or I would think, geez, where have I gone so badly wrong? But he just kind of, you know, it was the way that world seemed to turn. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Like, did he have a lot of friends who were just a little bit shady? Or, I mean, how did he ever get into this world? Well, he he met the wrong people at the right time for him. Yeah. Somehow, I don't know. I don't know. They talk about prison being the university of crime. Yeah. Well, he clearly met people who said, well, when you come out, he thought of trying this one or this way of making the odd pound or two. Yeah. So I think he, he met, you know, what my mother might have called some wrongans. <laughs> yes. Who told him how to do it bigger and better. Better. The first time he went to a very heavy-duty prison in London called Wandsworth. Yeah. Um, which was um, heavy-duty people. I don't know what category prison it was, but a pretty threatening uh, atmosphere because my sister and I went to visit. By that time, I started working in public relations and communications, and I was working for the probation service, so I got some <laughs> feel for the... For, it, it, gets, it gets funnier. <laughs> Sorry. I, 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 on, on their PR. So we went We went to visit. So I got some uh, knowledge. And so the anticipation of what we might find, I'm, you know, I was ready for. My sister, I think, was deeply, deeply shocked by the, yeah. the visiting experience. And my mother, I can remember us saying to her, we, we're, we're going to go and see Paul. And she said, well, will you make sure that he's changing his underpants regularly and, you know, make sure he's, he has fresh bedding every week? And and you thought, well, actually, you don't have a clue. It doesn't quite work, work like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it just goes to highlight how alien it was to your world and how he somehow yes. managed to just move into that orbit. Yep, yep. It's so and, bizarre and how that happens to a, to a to a, just a you know a normal middle class family. Yeah, yeah, and entirely foreign. I mean, there was no reason what, uh, other than maybe watching a a crime drama yeah. on television why yeah. they should have any knowledge of that world. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the world he he dropped into. Uh, his second spell in prison, he spent time in what they called an open prison, so it was a low category much lower risk prisoners and 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 um population than the first prison he'd been in and so so do, do you know what he went into into the big house for the second time um well again it was fraud because yeah. he didn't he didn't learn a lesson um and he met people like there was a very famous um hijack heist at Heathrow airport in london called the brinks mat robbery where gold bullion was stolen and the people who managed that were in prison at the same time as him. Right. So he'd moved up to the <gasps> University of Crime. He, he had. He was being, being taught by professors. Or, you know, he was. Know. He was actually. He was actually competing with you while you were rubbing shoulders with the Rolling Stones. He was rubbing yeah, shoulders with the who's who of the criminal world. <laughs> he was. He was. Yes. Oh wow! That's right. What an interesting parallel that is between you two. 
but, but what happened after his spell in open prison was that he was going to come out on parole. So he was released early. And in order to do that, you had to be um, supervised under a license by a probation officer. But he had no address to go to. So we offered him accommodation and he came to live with us. And a probation officer was visiting on a regular basis and saying to me, isn't it good that Paul's going straight now? Well, he wasn't. He was. He came out, and he was still at it. And you, um, knew, you knew that. Yeah, that's a difficult situation to find yourself in, isn't it? Well, it was, but it was sort of, in a way, we were running a big risk because we had uh, my son, who was at the time about eight or thereabouts. He was at um, primary school, and a daughter, a couple of years younger than that. And I can remember that was a parents' open day at the school where my son was, and uh, my brother turned up with a mate that he met in prison <laughs> called Fat Fred. Now, Fat Fred looked like he'd stepped straight from a TV drama <laughs> as an archetypal villain. And my brother, he, he looked like he was dressed for the part of a, a con man. He'd got white shoes on with gold chains and and kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a, pink, a pink shirt and bracelets and bangles. What was the name of that show with Dennis Waterman? Oh, Minder. Uh, it sounds very oh, Minder. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Fat, Fat Fred became a victim as well because Fat Fred was genuinely trying to go straight, as far as I could make out. Yeah. He was an electrician, and Fat Fred had a van that he kept his tools and stuff in. And my brother said the van was what they call leased, you know, on a, a, a higher agreement. And my brother said the lease arrangement wasn't so good. He could work out something better for Fat Fred. But he needed Fat Fred's checkbook and bank account details to do that. Guess what? The van gets repossessed because Fat Fred's not keeping up the payments. And Fat Fred is looking for my brother subsequently to go and break his leg. Oh, so God. Another, vi another victim. And then, um, entirely coincidentally, not long after he moved out from us, our house was burgled. <laughs> and the only, things, the only things that got taken were things of both sentimental and monetary value, which was essentially my wife's jewellery inherited from her mum or, um, you know, wedding presents. But it was an inside job because somebody knew the layout of the house and where that was where that stuff was yeah and the police came and and we never recovered the jewelry we never knew for certain that it was my brother but it was just too much of a coincidence yeah yeah oh that's that's a bit heartbreaking isn't it very but and... what was heartbreaking sort of in the lead up to this was that um before he came out from the open prison to come with us on come and live with us on parole my mum, who'd kind of buried all this stuff, you know, under a carpet or chose to pretend it wasn't happening, it was all too much for her. And um, uh, the prospect of him coming out, you know, and now an ex-prisoner and back into her life and that of the life she was, the, the people she was sharing her time with, um, she killed herself. She just couldn't handle what was happening. And I don't know that he knows that that's what happened. He he knows that she died because he came out. This was three days before he was due to be released because he came to the funeral. 
um, but I don't know that he knows the manner of her death. Really? No. How did you, I mean? That's a, it's all very British, I've got to say. Because how did you? How did you not? How did you not just in in grief, out of anger, just lash yeah. out at him? I don't know. I don't know. My father. I think we went along with my father, who um, described it to the family outside of the immediate family and business acquaintances as being, uh, you know, Gladys. That was my mum's name. Had an accident. And unfortunately, is no longer with us. It was that. Sort of, um, and she that, threw herself out of a window. Oh, that's that is so sad. Mm. And and how old was she at, at this point? Oh, I don't know, 55 <gasps> maybe. A young woman, yeah. Oh, isn't that shameful? Just, isn't that awful? That it was almost him being in prison was just a good way to keep everything under the rug, and then. Exactly, exactly so, yeah, yeah. And, and then as a consequence of, of, of that, um, my father, you know, was an uh, utterly lost. Hmm. And, um, and uh, he and my brother, after my mother's funeral, um, never saw each other again. And my father died, I've always described him as having died of a broken heart about 18 months later. Oh, and so he must have been a relatively young man as well. He he, he was, yeah. So isn't that a, cheer, a cheerful story? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd describe it as cheerful, but man, oh man, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't a terrible little twist that happened? And yeah, and just to think, you know, the way you just had uh, had started off just describing your family, it sounded like colourful and perfect. Um, and, and then just to have have it go so wrong, so drastically. Yeah. And so tell me, what what became of him? Well, he drifted off. He stayed in this area of the country, as far as we know. We never had any further contact yeah. um, after the combination of all these things. So my sister then, because she became the sort of, you know, the head of the family, as it were. She tried to find him through the prison service and tried to find him. I, I helped her with the probation service, but that led nowhere. And so gradually the impetus to try and find him and re-establish contact was lost until not so long ago, maybe two or three years back, uh, for some reason, I just decided that maybe it would be good to find out what the conclusion to this story was. Yeah. And I um, went to the Salvation Army, who were, they've got this missing persons operation in the UK, which is really good, really impressive. And they found two people who might or might not have been him, neither of whom, because then they write and say, we have this person who's looking for you. Would you be happy to meet with them? Neither of them came back and said yes. Right. So they kind of drew a drew a blank. blank. So, so one of them could have one of them could have been him. One of them could have been. Yeah. yeah. But that's where and of course they don't divulge who and where they are. So that was where the story rests. And I I, I think probably what happened is that he crossed paths with somebody that he shouldn't have done and, and um and you know, they saw the end of it. 
Yeah. But who knows? Who knows? Oh, that's really left me quite bewildered, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> but, like... I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Please don't be sorry. I mean, thank you so much for, for talking so honestly about it. Do you think of him often? Not often, but sometimes. And, and, and um, the sad... The really sad thing, I guess, in all this is not only my mother and subsequently my father's premature deaths, which they undoubtedly were, but when I went to the Salvation Army, out of courtesy, I, I went back to his wife and the two children yeah. and said, I'm going to do this. Do you, uh, are you okay with it? Do you? And they said, yeah, go ahead. But um, both the children, the, his daughter said she would have no idea what, he looked like even so she wouldn't be able to kind of gauge what her reaction might be and um his son said you know if i see him i want to kill him for what he did to mum because he walked out on their marriage in you know between all these fraudulent episodes and yeah so you know he devastated a lot of lives yeah yeah he did didn't he what an interesting character <laughs> And do you know what? I mean, you know, as tragic as it is, and I've, I've got to say I, I am very, very, very sorry for your circumstances, but as as things go down the generations, what a wonderful piece of family folklore to have. Well, and, and it, it, although my two children were on the sidelines and, and actually in the middle of all this, you know, part of this all happening, my wife was too before during and after, um, you know, even that I've, I've never sat down and told the story like I've just told it to you. Looking back, it's incredible. Yeah. This is going to come across as a really stupid question, but d d do you wish it was different? Um, I wish, I, I, I guess, I wish life is about understanding and I wish I could understand why. And I wish I knew what the end was, what the final chapter had been and the last words in that chapter. Mm. But I don't, I don't understand why and nor will I ever know for certain. Yeah. Unless, of course, he hears this. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you never know. Stranger things have, no. have happened, Chris. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so if you're out there... <laughs> yeah, but I, I just, I now, I don't know, I, I don't know three or four years back when I got the Salvation Army involved, quite what I thought would happen if they found him. Yeah. I thought I'd cross the bridge when, when we got there. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how I'd handle that, to be honest. Yeah, it'd be a very, it'd, it'd be a very interesting little episode, I've got to say. Well, I'll come back to you and you can do a, a live <laughs> broadcast. <laughs> Oh, you're a funny man. Uh, listen, thank you so much for for, for telling me your story. I I, I found it I, I found it genuinely surprising, and um, and like I'd always try and do, I, I do try and um, see the the positive sides of things, no matter how tragic they are. And it is very difficult to see a positive side of your your mum's terrible death. Yeah, but you know. These stories are best shared, I always think, and um, the, the shame that your poor mum must have felt is something that's just wrong. And I think yeah. 
I think the more people talk about things and the more people are open about things and feel like they don't have to own other people's disgraceful behaviour, the better off the world probably would be, I'd say. so. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of My Fucked Up Family enough to subscribe, share or like. And remember, if you have your own fucked up family story you'd like to share, contact us through our Facebook page.